If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Many of us love curling up with a good book. But as Emma Smith's new book, Portable Magic, reveals, throughout history, the printed word has been much more than just a source of comfort. It's helped to spread religion, forge empires, and even save lives on the battlefield. From books bound in human skin to one made entirely from sliced cheese, Emma tells Rhiannon Davis about the fascinating history of books and how they've shaped us. So, Emma, why do you think books are so powerful? Well, do you know, I mean, books have been powerful to us for two two millennia. One of the things that so struck me is how little they have changed. It's hard to think of anything else, any other piece of technology, which has uh, continued in such a stable form over this period. So that if uh, a Roman from the first century CE looked at the Sunday Times bestseller list for this week, they would recognise that these are book objects. So we've lived with them a long time. I think that's, that's one thing. And I also think there's, there's something in the fact that our first books... Indeed, the the word book uh, and and the words that come from around book, like Biblio in particular, they're associated with religion. That's where we get Bible. So books began by being sort of sacred objects, um, objects which gave us um, scriptural advice, which were in themselves valuable. And even though most of our books are not now um, religious books, I think some of that religious or sacred quality continues to attach itself uh, to the book. So when people are arguing about whether you should write in your books or use a highlighter or something, in some ways they're thinking about um, attitudes to holy books and reverence towards them. Um, So I I, kind of think we've had this relationship, this special relationship for quite a long time. And you mentioned writing in books. That's something I wanted to ask you about because I know I certainly have a lot of heated debates in my household about whether to use a bookmark or to fold over a page of a book. Where do you stand on that? Oh, I'm absolutely permissive. I think books are for using. Um, and I think, you know, you, 
Actually, I think one of the saddest things is a, the sign of a book that seems to have never been opened. Um, the same way that you see a toy car that's still in its box and you think that's, that's not living its best life. So I think a book, a book that has got its uh, corners folded down or a sense that it's, uh, that, that it's being used, uh, is a good, is a good thing. So I'm, I'm all for it. But I guess if they're not your books, um, that, that's a slightly different matter. Uh, people were very wary of lending books to, uh, Dr. Johnson, Samuel Johnson, when he was compiling his dictionary because he had a terrible reputation for bringing them back sort of smeared with food and uh, <laughs> kind of in a terrible mess. So I think I think there's a way, there is an etiquette, isn't there, about how you treat other people's books, how you treat library books, um, and then something a bit freer about how you treat your own. Definitely. And what really struck me in Portable Magic is it's as much about the form of a book, so the pages, the cover, the illustrations, as it is about the content itself, the words. Could you talk a bit about why that is so important? I start the book with... Um, a folk story, a story that will be familiar to us because it's Mickey Mouse uh, in The Sorcerer's Apprentice or or it's um, the, the Harry Potter kids uh, in the library pulling off the shelves, these kind of old magic books. And it's that idea that, as I say, I think everybody will be familiar with, that, that somehow the book itself can do magic. You don't have to be a magician, but if you open the book of spells and you use it, you can summon up something uh, often, actually, in those stories, something quite frightening. Uh, and I was, I was sort of, you know, really interested in the way that the f it's the form of that book. We all know what a magic book looks like. Um, even though it doesn't sort of really exist, but we know what it should look like because that's very familiar to us. And that made me think more about how form affects what we expect uh, to read and how it shapes what we read. And I think that works on lots of different levels. So one is, if you've had a favourite book as a child, you probably remember that book absolutely in the edition that you had with the cover, with the type, uh, with you know everything about it, even the smell. Uh, if you buy a new version, uh, you know maybe for a, a grandchild or something, it just doesn't feel like the same book. The, the contents are exactly the same, but it's not the same book, and it doesn't have the same feel in your hand. And I think we're all familiar with that. There's a high end of that, which is all about super rare books uh, that people spend millions, millions of pounds on. But it's just a general phenomenon about our own books. I began to think about the way the form of books might have been slightly overlooked in some arguments that we think have been all about content. I went back to the famous trial, the trial in some ways that sort of stood for the liberated 1960s, the, the Lady Chatterley's Lover, D.H. Lawrence's book, uh, when Penguin books were uh, taken to court for obscenity in, in publishing this. And I was thinking about, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a really famous line from one of the prosecution uh, lawyers, which said, would you want your wife would you want your servant to read this book? And that just sounded like a blast from the Victorian past or something. But I was thinking about what, why did he say that? And partly he said it in a patrician kind of way about protecting people uh, from um, obscene material as he saw it. But I think he said it because what Penguin had done was to publish the book as a paperback. And the paperback was cheap. It was widely available and I think it's quite clear if you look at the Lady Chatterley's Lover trial that if Penguin had published Lady Chatterley's Lover as a hardback book, which because of its cost, because of the way it circulated, would have been kept for quite an elite in society, there wouldn't have been the outcry. 
So Lady Chatterley's Lover was as much a trial of the paperback as it was of, you know, the obscenity of um, uh, Constance and Mellor's uh, love affair. So form really, really mattered there. And I became really fascinated, actually, by the paperback revolution uh, in, in the 1960s. I think it helped me in the 1960s and before. It helped me to see why the Beatles had not written a song called Hardback Writer. <laughs> Certainly. So thinking about that trial then, that really speaks to the anxiety surrounding books, doesn't it? When do these first begin to take shape? I think anxieties about books and the power of books are as old as books themselves. Uh, we've got biblical uh, suggestions that the uh, evangelising Christians that St Paul is writing about should gather books of competing religious traditions and, and destroy them. Uh, there's a sense both that the knowledge uh, contained in books, but also the books as a form uh, are, are dangerous, that, that goes hand in hand with books and with our love of books, actually. And one of the things I've tried to do in Portable Magic is to write about books in a way which comes from a place of deep, well, I can't imagine my life without without books. Um, it's a kind of unthinkable, kind of counterfactual. Uh, so it comes from a place of deep sort of love uh, of books, but also a sense that we can over-invest in these objects. They are sometimes dangerous. There are some hugely difficult questions around book banning uh, and book circulation that I haven't got answers to and we, you know, we've been struggling with uh, for as long as that we've had books. Mm. Well, let's drill down then into that danger. What do you think is the most dangerous book in history? Wow, that's a great question. That's an absolutely great question. And there would be um, people who would say uh, the Bible has been the most dangerous book or, you know, people who might say Mein Kampf has been the most uh, d dangerous book. I suppose where I come at this is to think about specific copies of books one of the things I write about is the first American Bible, that's to say the first Bible printed in the New World, printed in the middle of the 17th century, is actually printed not in English, but in the Algonquin language of the Native, uh, Native Americans. And it's part of uh, the evangelising mission of the Puritan settlers uh, in New England. And uh, we've got copies of this book, We've got copies that have been annotated by uh, Native Americans who are struggling with uh, the, this new faith and, and the, the uh, expectations of colonial settlement. Uh, and they're, they're really painful documents, actually, of a transition. Um, well, a tra transition is too, is too gentle of, a, of an enforced um, change, uh, a, a kind of almost a genocide, really, uh, certainly a cultural genocide. So they're, they're really difficult books to look at. They're very, um, that was a dangerous book in that it was, uh, it spearheaded the destruction of a whole way of life and a whole society. But there's a wonderful sort of twist in the tale of that story, which is, of course, this language didn't have a written form until John Eliot, the uh, a Puritan cleric, sort of devised an orthography, a way of spelling it out and devised this printed form uh, for it. One of the consequences of his translated Bible and of the settlement that it was part of was the, uh, the eradication of that language. Uh, everybody started to speak English and this Algonquin language was, was almost completely forgotten. And there's been a project in the last 
10 years to uh, relearn it. And it's because of this Bible, which set out the language, that the, that there's a sort of, I mean, it's kind of like an arc, um, which has preserved the language. So it's such an interesting object. It was an absolute object of danger and destruction, and it has become the place to recreate something uh, that, that was lost. So let's move away from danger for a second then and think about books and empire, because I think there could almost be a tendency for a listener to think that books are inextricably tied up with the West, but that's not the case, is it? Because book printing has got earlier roots in the East. Yeah, that's that's right. When you investigate um, Gutenberg's revolution, we always think that Gutenberg um, developing printing in the mid-15th century uh, in, in Mainz was uh, the inventor of movable type, the, the invention that, that transformed uh, book production. So there were books before print, there were manuscript books, but printed books we tend to uh, place at, at Gutenberg's uh, door and he is widely um, credited, isn't he, with, with the introduction of print. I think print is at the start of uh, what the Europeans call their Renaissance, which has tended in the past to um, try and eliminate the ways in which a lot of that knowledge came from the East, came particularly from uh, Islam. And we've tended to rewrite, I guess it's a, it's an idea that will be familiar to, to, to listeners uh, of, of this podcast, the, the idea that history is written by the winners, Europe re- rewrote the history of uh, the Fifteenth um, and sixteenth centuries to say that they had had the Renaissance first, the kind of Enlightenment first, were therefore somehow um, poised to take over the rest of the world. But we can see that there is movable type uh, in lots of um, locations before Gutenberg, mostly in Korea and in China, uh, and that that invention was available actually there were travelers going to that to those places they could have brought both movable type and the kind of printing paper technology that Gutenberg also has to develop they could have brought that decades even perhaps centuries earlier and what's so interesting I think about Gutenberg's invention so-called invention is that it's it's one of those inventions that needs to wait for its time And it does seem that the earlier 15th century and previously in Europe, uh, society was quite content with relatively limited access to written material. And therefore, there was no demand for quite an expensive technology that could produce more written material more quickly. If you don't want the material, you don't really want the invention. And so there's a Two things come together, I think, which is Gutenberg's uh, technological and entrepreneurial energy and uh, the demand, the increasing demand for learning. Uh, and that's why we get printing uh, in, in the West. But it's certainly not a Western invention. And how does the arrival of the printing presses revolutionise books and readers? So I think the answer to that is perhaps it doesn't immediately. And... That sometimes comes as a surprise. We think that this must have just been an overnight change. And obviously printing produces books many, many times quicker than the old scriptorium, the, the, the kind of 
um, writing room uh, of of the monastery uh, book production system. But nevertheless, these early printed books are still very expensive. They're they're for uh, an elite readership. Uh, That probably doesn't change uh, immediately. But certainly by the 16th century, we have got huge numbers of books being produced books drive the protestant revolution they 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 drive um what in england is the is the reformation they drive the scientific revolution so yeah by the 16th century we're starting to see um large numbers of these objects being produced and therefore a much wider uh they have a much wider reach still to come on the history extra podcast Ben Denzer's book, which is called American Cheese, and it's a little square yellow book the size of slices of processed cheese, and it is 20 wrapped slices of cheese. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed And now I'd like to circle back to danger and to approach it from a bit of a different angle because you write about books bound in human skin and history. Can you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, this was one of the really gruesome, sort of difficult things that I uh, that I found out about and, and began to research. And it's a phenomenon that really dates from the 19th century um and it, it's which is a period of um great sort of connoisseurship in book production and book binding if you're a wealthy victorian one of the ways you showed your wealth was that you bought books uh and and valuable books and distinct books and i think there's always been an a slight tension in book ownership between Precisely what we were talking about, about Gutenberg, the book as a mass-produced commodity on the one hand and as a unique object on the other. One of the ways 
that, that certain Victorians, particularly judges and medics, uh, made books unique was through the practice of what's called anthropodermy, uh, binding books in, in human skin. There are a couple of uh, examples in the UK, uh, the Welcome Collection for of, of Medical Literature has some, uh, and there is one uh, example of the trial of a murderer being bound in skin from the, from the murderer. But the example that I really tried to develop was of this completely amazing woman called Phyllis Wheatley, who was the first uh, African-American published poet. She was an enslaved woman in Boston, and she was in the household of a family who I think sort of made her into a bit of a pet, really. Gave her an education, encouraged her in this very religious uh, kind of writing, and encouraged the publication of her poetry. And there are two examples of her uh, poems uh, bound in uh, in human skin. And it seems so ironic, so troubling to me that the the idea of bondage, uh, the bondage of, of enslavement is and, and the bondage of sin, that kind of Christian idea, it, those two combine so much in Phyllis Wheatley's poetry. And then there was uh, the, the sort of bondage of these books somehow bound, bound in skin. So I'm interested in how we might develop a better conversation about these objects, just as museums have come to do about human remains that perhaps were part of colonial collections or something and to treat them with a bit more a bit more respect i think we've got a bit of work to do perhaps in the in the library sector to think uh, think about these objects differently so let's go away now from the creation of books to the destruction of them you mentioned book burning earlier why are books burned i think books are burned for a piece of theater they're not really burned as a uh, a practical attempt to eradicate them. So what book burning does is to produce a spectacle which can warn people or declare something or unite a community in what, what they feel about uh, uh, about something. So I, I think of it as a, as a piece of theatre and like all theatre, it can be sort of reappropriated or, or interpreted in different ways. Um, and we, we just heard uh, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, talking about the cultural sort of boycott of, of Russian artists at the moment as a version of Nazi book burning. And that when I heard that reported, I, I thought how, well, I, I thought lots of things, but one, one thing was how striking it is to see those, that iconic event in 20th century history reinvented again for an, for another political purpose just as it, i think it's been right from the 1940s onwards we have added meanings to um the, the spectacle of book burning in nazi germany in in may 1933 which was i mean a, a compelling piece of piece of theater at the time but perhaps not as um didn't have as much impact as that image of book burning has gained uh, ever since. It's been redeployed and reinterpreted and sort of newly represented for different generations to be the archetype of the destruction of, of knowledge. 
and a warning that the, that the destruction of knowledge and the destruction of people go go hand in hand. Obviously, they, they did then. I'm not. I'm not sure the generalisation is actually true. So, if book burning ultimately isn't that successful beyond being a piece of theatre, what about censorship? Is that a better way of really destroying the ideas of books? Lots of the examples of censorship that I looked at uh, were interestingly about censors who wanted the book to go ahead or wanted the book to be circulated, but nevertheless wanted to redact or take out certain uh, material that was thought to be uh, offensive. I looked at a copy of Shakespeare's uh, second folio, which comes from, um, is published in 1632, uh, which was part of a Jesuit seminary. And so somebody has gone through um, taking out rude words, anti-Catholic uh, sentiments. Uh, it looks like uh, a document that you might see on the news, which has got you know certain things very heavily blacked out so that you can't read a, a name or something. So there's no attempt to hide the fact that it's been censored. Uh, I, and I became really interested in what the internet, I think, calls the Barbara Streisand effect, which is that if you stop people trying to find out something... Barbara Streisand tried to stop people finding out the location of her beachside house or something on the internet. And of course, that made everybody massively, massively interested in it. So it completely backfired. And there is a way in which censorship, certainly in the modern period, completely backfires by making, drawing attention to the material that's been that's been banned. Um, the Catholic Church uh, had a long uh, history of, of, of trying to ban books. Uh, and there's a a lovely moment uh, in the 17th century where someone says, if we, a Protestant says, if we want to know all the things that are rude about Catholics, the Catholics have produced a lovely list for us already. So, you know, if they don't like it because it's anti-Catholic, we must love it and here it is already produced. So censorship um, often has a kind of flip side, either in drawing attention to what's missing or in making people sort of seek, seek it out, or just in um, tr leaving behind traces of its own of its own processes. Mm. And we've talked quite extensively about the dangers of books. So let's move to the flip side of that: books as protection. How have they been a source of protection in history? So there's a really uh, explicit version of that, which. I'd like to use, I mean, both as, a, as an example, but as a metaphor for it. And that's the idea of the book that stops a bullet. I think we've all heard that or read a story about it. And in fact, there are hundreds, probably even thousands of books marked with bullets, um, which have a story that says, you know, uh, if it weren't for sort of chapter 15, you know, this bullet would have uh, pierced, the, pierced the heart of this soldier or something. It's a big... Um, it's a big thing in the American Civil War for some reason. And of course, it, it plays into an idea. They're often Bibles and it plays into an idea that the it's both the book as an object and the scriptures as protection that, that are combined in this idea that it can it can stop a, stop a bullet. And I think that talismanic sense of of books um, is a very interesting one. I traced the controversy when the first uh, American Muslim 
uh, congressman wanted to swear his oath on the Quran and not on the Bible and what those different sort of talisman, talismanic books uh, might mean. And the fact that in the UK, despite uh, evidence from censuses that the majority of people don't uh, consider themselves to to be conf- to conform to any of the religions of the book, um, uh, Judaism, uh, Islam or, or Christianity. Nevertheless, it's still the dominant form of giving an oath in court that you would swear on, on, on a holy book and that that would be what would keep you honest rather than swearing on a on, on, on your own honour or, or, or something else. So lots of the books ideas about books as talismans can be cast as quite superstitious or uh, as, as a, something from the past or from a more innocent age. And some of them are quite strange, the idea that you, you could open a book at random, it would give you an answer to a dilemma that you were, you were suffering. That all seems quite a long way from us, but it's good to be reminded that I think there are still ways that in our own um, apparently post-superstitious time, books, books are talismans for us. And I could not forgive myself if I did not ask you about the book made of processed cheese. <gasps> could you tell us about that, Emma? Ben Denzer's book, which is called American Cheese, and it's a little square yellow book the size of slices of processed cheese, and it is 20 wrapped slices of cheese, and they're bound at the left, uh, and they're in a hard hardcover. They've got the title on the front and on the spine, and you can open them and turn the pages. There's nothing nothing written on the cheese. And I, I mean, I love, I love that book, and um, Denza has done uh, other uh, similar things. He's got a book of made of slices of mortadella. Uh, for, um, he's got um, books made of American dollar bills and so on. And I, I thought a lot about that in a, uh, a sort of more more existential question about what what is a book, and in some ways that's a question which we often think about in relation to e-books or digital books or something. Um, but this seemed to me to give a slightly different angle on that um, because. Uh, it's a book without, apparently without any writing or without any content, but with an entire book architecture. So it's another example of a book that would have been recognised by, I don't know, St Cuthbert, um, who, who was buried with a, with a copy of the Gospel, you know, a book with a, with a binding and where, where you turn, turn the pages. There are tablets like that have been found at, in the Roman fort at Vindolanda. This is just a form that, that is very familiar to us. And Denzer is playing a game with that in a way, I think, and, th- and saying we we make books from organic material. Could we make them from other kinds of material? What would it mean to keep a book in the fridge? I know that um, I-, I encountered Ben Denzer's uh, book in the Bodleian Library in Oxford, where they have had to buy a fridge uh, to keep it in. <laughs> so uh, it's an interesting sort of cataloguing uh, problem. Uh, but it's, it, it's a fantastic playful um i mean but yeah book, books are dangerous books have been maligned there are uh th- th- there are difficult issues to think about they are also and can be you know enormous fun life affirming sort of life giving and i think ben denzer's um american cheese book is definitely on that side of the equation Definitely. I'd love to see a full refrigerated library. I bet that would be quite a sight. So for my final question, how do books shape us? 
I sometimes think about that image, that deportment image, where uh, young women were taught to have good posture by balancing a book on their head. It was always a book. And again, that strikes me as a sort of metaphor for books uh, effecting a kind of transformation. That's quite a positive version, isn't it? It suggests that book ma- books make us better. And that's the, a long history of books from their religious beginnings through to the sort of self-help books uh, that we all read now. The idea that books are going to transform us, uh, I think, is a really powerful part of their uh, of, of their promise. So, that in some ways, that's a, that's a way in which the content of books might might help us be better people. But I wonder if the form has also um, transformed us in some interesting ways. Uh, one of the experiments that uh, neuroscientists have been interested in is how the way we use smartphones is sort of re- reconnecting our um, the way our brains and our hands uh, work together. And there must be something. Diff- there must be something. I think there must be something similar about books and how the feel of books, uh, the way we operate them, the way we turn pages, uh, the way we use our hands to to make bookmarks or to um, to sort of flatten out the spine. Uh, I think I think those are neural processes, physical and neural processes, which have changed our our brains and the ways uh, we we think and the ways we get in our information. So I think we are, we think of books as something which we read, but I think they have had a reciprocal effect on us too. That was Emma Smith. Her latest book is Portable Magic, which is available now from Alan Lane. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.